Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. It's almost been two decades since I entered the world of pediatric sports medicine. It's been over 30 years since I was in high school sports. The typical three-sport athlete has become less common since then, but certainly not extinct. Both boys and girls have seen their sports become more organized, starting training at younger ages, and an ever-increasing focus on year-round participation in a single sport. Finding less competitive recreational leagues and even intramural sports options can be a great struggle as our young athletes get older. But what do we know about youth sports specialization? We talk a lot about sports specialization. It may not be great for our young athletes, but is that true? Today on the podcast, we have an expert in youth sports specialization to help us work through this. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Neeru Gianthi. Dr. Gianthi is an Associate Professor of Orthopedics and Family Medicine at Emory University. He is the Associate Director of their Primary Care Sports Medicine Fellowship and Co-Director of the Youth Sports Medicine Program and Director of Sports Medicine Research and Education at Emory. Dr. Gianthi is considered one of the country's leading experts on youth sports health, injuries, and sports training patterns, as well as an international leader in tennis medicine. He is also a team physician for multiple teams in the Atlanta area. Welcome to the podcast, Niru. Mark, thanks so much, and thank you for uh, pushing off a few minutes so I can watch the Australian Open Finals five-set thrilling uh, match. Absolutely, and I know you could probably spend the whole podcast episode here talking about the match and your interest in tennis. Maybe I'll get you back on some point. We can talk about tennis medicine. I think that would be a good episode to talk about at some point in the future. Sure. You would need about a two-hour podcast for that, but Sure. <laughs> For those of you who haven't met or heard Nero speak on this topic, I think you'll leave this episode today with a better understanding where we are with current knowledge and sports specialization. Nero is a family practice trained doc who no question sees lots of kids, but since he likes kids so much, especially with his focus on research, I think most of his pediatricians think of him as an honorary pediatrician. So let's just cut to the chase. How bent out of shape should we get that so many young athletes still specialize in sports? It's a great question. And while, as you know, Mark, I've done a fair amount of research with others now as well over the years, demonstrating some of the potential risks of sports specialization. And in some ways, we might have gone too far to tell everyone that it's just bad, bad, bad all the time and not take a little deeper dive and say, is it when is it bad and when is it good? So I think that is definitely, there's certainly a, a trend that has concerns for a culture we have provided as an overall structure for youth sports that I think we really have to reevaluate for getting enough opportunities for all kids and keeping them engaged. But at an individual level, I think it has to be a case-by-case basis. And, and in some situations with the right support environment, we'll go over some of these content topics, it can be an appropriate situation for some young athletes. But I, I think that we have to kind of fall in the middle a little bit and accept that there's probably about a 30 to 40% that are going to be specialized and perhaps 
continue to specialize despite all of the recommendations you might get from the academies. I think that's probably a philosophy that we have a lot in sports medicine as we start looking into a topic that we really didn't have a lot of research before is we go from one extreme to the other and then we fall somewhere in the middle. And I, I certainly see that from me in the world of concussion where we're getting kind of a little bit more lenient with things, not to the extremes of what we were doing before. And I, and I see that happening with youth sports specialization as well. With your research that you mentioned, what is the risk to youth athletes from specializing in sport? I'll give a little historical perspective on this. The first study we did was actually on tennis players. Gosh, I don't know. It's maybe about 12, 15 years ago. And we had just found an association that the tennis players that specialized were more likely to have reported an injury than those that didn't. And this typically means an overuse injury. And it happened to be at the time where Andre Agassi put his book out called Open. And it was at the time there was a lot of publicity about pushing your kids too much and and that light tennis players. So then we felt like we needed to do this in a larger study involving other sports. So that's when we did our study involving about 1,200 athletes. My colleague, Cynthia Labella in Chicago was a co-investigator. And over three years, we followed these kids and we demonstrated that probably the, the actual biggest risks were overuse injuries and in fact, serious overuse injuries for those that were more highly specialized. Other things have come of it. We've seen other studies talking about burnout, potentially attrition, and I think those may be real. But quite honestly, I think we have to be careful to say that all the long-term health implications are actually going to happen. In other words, we've, we've talked about it and we assume that it might be true, but we just don't have long-term data on specialized athletes. So I know the academy recommendations say that I'm on many of them. I think we have to see if we push too far when we start getting people to think that you shouldn't be playing sports. We start, you went through this with concussion, Mark. Like you start saying things like, should you even have your child play sports? You know, and they might get a concussion, all these things. And I think we're missing the boat. And so, yes, there's some overutilization and there's some overspecialization, but let's not kind of discourage it so much so that we're telling, sending a message that sports participation is bad or something like that. Yeah. There are worse things that a kid could do, I think, than play a lot of a sport. I agree with that. And kind of on that, when is specialization really considered acceptable? On a broader sense, we, you know, we've been struggling to try to find the right recommendations. And, you know, again, like I've probably been on at least eight or 10 either position statements or reviews that we try to sit together and say, when, answer that question. First of all, the data, we just don't have a, a strong data set to say it. And I think the biggest reason is because we group all the sports together and we try to give a cross-sectional answer. You know, I was on the one with AOSSM. They, you know, we defined it as 12 years old. But, you know, 12 years old is not really the right number for football. F- football, people don't specialize. And, you know, most NFL draft picks played multiple sports in high school and all these other things. But in gymnastics and tennis, you know, in soccer, which I'm not sure I'm crazy about, the age might be less. And, and so I think it's a very sport dependent answer, number one, where it may be more acceptable. We might say things like, rather than the age, say, you know, stage of development, we've used terms like, you know, using middle adolescence, at least. For some people, that's 12, but some people, that's 14. So I think at least middle or late adolescence in the majority of kids, and I'll keep having that qualifier. I think in most kids, we want an exploratory phase to get them through to at least that stage middle adolescence or late adolescence, so they can try a number of sports. But there will be a portion of high-level elite athletes who, who are, have a lot of self-drive, who have a good supportive environment, and are resilient. 
and will still go for it. And they'll want to go for it in that one sport. And we published a quality of life study looking at parents and families of kids. And these are descriptive interviews. It was a qualitative study. And we we found that those are the characteristics of a successful specialized family per se, where the, their focus wasn't on just winning. It was on, you know, you have the right support and the kids were resilient. So in other words, like if they either got hurt or they lost or they had bad outcomes, they would just pick themselves up and they can go back and do it again. And, you know, I don't think most kids are able to do that at a young age, but there are a special few that are very resilient. And like I said, have the right environment and they can be successful. And these were a number of specialized athletes, particularly in gymnastics and tennis and other high specialization sports. I think what would be helpful, maybe just taking a step back and, and how in your research are you defining and how are, how should we be defining sports specialization? Because if you look at my high school career, my high school career was four years of cross country, three years of track with one rebellious year, my sophomore year where I played tennis instead. Yes, Nero, I did play tennis for one year. Uh, Yay. <laughs> that was because I got hurt in track season because they tried to make me a distance runner and a hurdler and, and, I, and I got an overuse, I got a stress fracture there. So I, I just didn't want to go back to track that that year. But then I came back to it my junior year. But I, I was a runner and I still am a runner, you know, 30 some years later. And by all definitions, I'm a sports specializer from what I've done. But how, do, how are we defining that for research? It's a great question. Right now, the current definition is still what we produced a while ago. And I just recently emailed David Bell and his group out of Wisconsin, who've, who've really created a Delphi definition of, of, you know, what sports specialization is, just so we have an understanding of it, which is really year-round exposure or year-round participation in a single sport, uh, at the exclusion of all other sports, you know, the operational research definition is the three components of can you choose a main sport? Have you quit all other sports just so you can focus on one sport? Do you do it more than, you know, year round, so more than eight months a year? Currently, that's it. Now, we're reevaluating whether that's good enough or not because, it, you know, we intentionally excluded volume, for example, like how much you participate and other factors like the self-motivation or, or the autonomy of the kid or psychological factors. And David Bell's group is working on more of a continuous definition. We're trying to work on a scoring system for it that might expand this. And we haven't incorporated age either or stage development. We tried that in one of our manuscripts and it didn't show the differences that we thought it might. And again, it's, I think it's because there's a cross-sectional definition. And so I don't know how many researchers are on the call, but for right now, we'll use, uh, you know, I, I can't believe that it's been published. They call it the JD scale, but they, they use the scale that we had done a number of you know years ago with those three points and look for more over the next year about other research definitions. Well, that's how you know you're the bigwig once you get something named after you, right? Yeah, well, I didn't name it. I'm trying to get, trying to get it, trying to get it off. It doesn't roll off the tongue very well. How should we as healthcare professionals help guide the process of thinking about sports specialization with our athletes? Just going through that, like we have someone that comes into our office or say we're trying to advise organizations on this. Yeah, and I think, okay, I'll give you, I think that's a really good question. And I think that's where it starts. I consulted with USTA on this, the ten, United States Tennis Association. We had to come in from an open mind. And I think you have to look at, we call them like there's a high performance pathway. And then there's the the recreational or participatory pathway. They're both important. And I think as an organization, you want a lot of kids to participate in the sport that you're supporting. And so in that pathway, you definitely 
want to emphasize sharing sports experiences with other organizations in sports. And that's what some of them have done. Aspen Institute, as you know, is try to put all the organizational leaders together to, to talk about that there is a strong benefit to multi-sport play for a number of years and a benefit for each organization to do that, to say, hey, look, you know, if you're a tennis player, take some time and go play basketball and soccer and baseball and do something else. And then we hope that you'll keep coming back to tennis. But you also have to have a pathway that's for the performance athlete. And what we try to do at the tennis level is we may say play other sports, but what we want to do is create an athlete development model where they're creating athlete development skills and doing something that helps their sport. And that actually might look a little different. And it's not necessarily that you're just signing up for basketball at 12 years old when you're trying to play 12 and under nationals. And so there's a specialized sampling model, which is actually accumulating hours within your construct, like your training academy in your sport, but then doing other activities that make you a better athlete, actually. And so you might, within your tennis academy, have times where you're dribbling a basketball and kicking a soccer ball and doing other things, but not necessarily signing up for it. And that might be a, a different approach for high performance academy. And then still accumulating the hours. We do know to be an elite level athlete, I'm not saying you need 10,000 hours. We all know that that's not, that's not true, but there is actually pretty good data that you have to accumulate more hours than those that aren't going to be elite, whatever that number is, it, it still is typically more so one way to do it is that model. So you have to be open, I think, to all kind of pathways because each sport in and of itself is different too. Agreed. And you mentioned resilience and we talk about the benefits of our workload. How, how do we develop those things? How do we get our workload well? How do we develop resilience? I had a chance at our World our STMS, Society for Tennis Medicine World Congress a few years back to finally meet in person and collaborate with Tim Gabbett, who is a PhD researcher on workload and from Australia, and he's been fantastic. He's done a lot of that actually in high level and professional athletes. And we decided to kind of come together a little bit and see what that model would look like for a youth athlete. And we feel that model is dynamic. And so what the concept is, is that you don't want to be afraid of developing workload. And I think as healthcare providers, we often maybe get too careful. We say, oh, this, your shoulder hurts or your back or your knee hurts why don't you just take some time off and then see if you can see if that'll help cure it and, and then go back into it. In order to, to be able to meet the demands of competitive play, whether you're an elite athlete, college, or a junior athlete, you have to create resilience. So your body has to work up towards that workload to do that. So you can't just take some time off and then feel like you're going to just be able to ramp up and, and get back in and be successful in competition. So Tim Gabbett, Dr. Gabbett, has really kind of emphasized that low workload volumes is also a risk for injury. And others have said this as well, too. So you have to, we call it a floor to ceiling concept. So you want the ceiling is the optimum amount of training workload um, and competition so that you could be at your highest. So let's say that's for you 15 hours a week, you need to do that to be able to compete at your best and your floor is the least amount. And that could be just four hours just so you're participating at all, but you won't be able to compete there. So you have to kind of go from your floor to ceiling and settings of injury or recovery. And you kind of like oscillate back and forth, depending on where you are, if you're injured, if you have a stage development and try not to go to zero and try not to, you always want to maintain some workload. But if you have a par stress injury, 
and you're back, then you have to start, you have to start all over. There's no, you know, you have to stop everything. And so the maintenance of workload through injury is actually an important concept. I think we could do better at, as healthcare professionals and try to make reductions only when necessary. He'll even argue that soft tissue injury is not a time to necessarily make any significant workload adjustments. You can rehab and still participate. So not every injury needs to shut down, nor not every injury needs any sort of significant workload change. And I think that's an important concept, but I also think it's it's it lends itself to a big area that we probably don't do very well, especially with our young athletes in the concept of what's the proper way to work our way back up from an injury, because a lot of it is, hey, I'm good, I'm healed, now I get to go back and I can participate fully, and then we potentially set that person up for another injury right away. And I, I, I think globally, we probably don't do as good of a job counseling our athletes and giving them proper guidance how to work their way back up. You know, I think that it's obviously it's the part of this that's sports where, you know, everybody's so eager to get back to compete and participate. But I, I think we, we, we lose a little bit when we're not really giving that proper counseling. And I think part of that is, is we don't have the answers as far as what's the most appropriate way to work someone back from every specific injury. There's just not enough research for pretty much any of the injuries that are out there. Great point. And we tried, we, we, we just published an article with Sports Health on this, you know, kind of dynamic model through maturation for the kind of the elite specialized athlete. And while we're still searching to get as much data as we can, we have an ongoing study looking at exactly that, Mark. What I try to do is in in our clinic is if someone's coming off an injury, we kind of categorize the level of risk of the injury. So if it's a lower risk injury, maybe it's an apophysitis, which I consider intermediate risk because it still involves a growth area or patellofemoral pain. We might make a modest reduction in their workload. And then, and if they were at, let's say 10 hours a week, we might go to like five or seven hours a week, and then tell them to make their increases back up slowly at no more than 20 to 30%, usually 20, 25% each week. That supports the the data that is available on acute to chronic workload ratios. And so you might go from five hours to six hours or six and a half hours a week, and then go to the next week, go to seven or seven and a half hours. And we write it out like over a four week period. Now, if you have a let's say a par stress injury you're coming back from, then you have to start all over from zero. You start at a very low reduced floor and then you work your way back up again. And that might look a little bit slower. It might take easily six weeks you know, to, to progress. So you might start at three, four hours a week and then you add an hour, hour and a half a week. And we specifically write those out to get them to what we consider their new ceiling. And, and I think you're exactly right. It takes time. You run late in clinic for sure. <laughs> and this is what I think parents, coaches, and, and these athletes are asking for. We have to be a little better if you're going to work with these youth athletes of not just only being kind of the doctor and say, oh, you just did too much. And then, you know, you just can't do as much. And be very specific. Be, I always say I'm very prescriptive about what their progressions look like. And so we do a lot of load monitoring as we go through the process. And I think that helps. And then they, they have a better understanding of that recurrence of injuries is so high, especially in certain areas like the back. So if we can be better at that load progression, help the coaches understand that our goal is to get their training loads up, but it just has to be done in a responsible way. Yeah, which that, that always becomes the challenge, right? When you're talking about a season, especially for a high school athlete where their season may be two, three months, uh, and then they're moving on potentially to a next sport. Now that I obviously that changes if you're a year round athlete, but there is still those compartmentalized, the club season, the high school season and things like that. 
So that's, I think, where it becomes even more of a challenge because you're running against time. But that's, I think, where we have to have that important message to them uh, is why that <laughs> we don't want them back in our office right away again. I always tell everybody, you know, I'd rather not see you in my office. I'd rather you be out there on the court or on the field instead of being in my office injured all the time. And Sometimes people get it and sometimes they're like, I just want to go back and play and that's all I care about. And whether I'm back in your office again, it doesn't matter to me. And I, I, I don't know. I just That's the part that I think we just need to make sure we're spending that time counseling about. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we will continue our discussion of youth sports specialization with Dr. Niru Gianti. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, (laughs) you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. As you develop relationships with the coaches, like we have a tennis medicine program and we believe so much in this monitoring. We, you know, I have a tennis athletic trainer who is at about, we have about 12 different academies that we, he runs around to. And we actually don't change our workload, don't always reduce it for every injury. So if you're really trying your best to have them do something, you're always having them out there and, you know, they have, you know, they have left wrist ulnar pain and, they can still hit forehands and do everything else. They might slice on the backhand. They can still do stuff and keep their workloads going. So then if they do develop a more serious injury, those are the times where you have to step in. And, and there's no season that's more important than if you have a one with like a lot of morbidity. And I keep going back to like a par stress injury because it's a good, clear example of one where you don't want to break too many rules on that. While again, patellofemoral pain or uh, a tendon issue that treatable and more reactive and other areas where you can work through our soft tissue injury. And if we can help them distinguish kind of the higher risk things between the lower risk things and, and only the bad stuff are the ones where, where you keep them out for longer periods. But yes, you're right. Seasons go quickly and there's a lot of push from the other side if, if we don't acknowledge that. We talk about the series of injury and you've done some research breaking down new versus recurrent injuries and series of injuries. Can you talk to us a little bit about that research? One is when we first published our data, we wanted to find, again, along this concept, like we understand that people get injured in youth sports. We call that 
you know, we define as either overuse or acute injury, which most of you know the those differences. But then we had defined what we call a serious overuse injury for those that a physician might prescribe one month or greater. And those would be like, you know, stress injuries, stress fractures, osteochondral lesions, and elbow ligament injuries, and those types of things that really should make us a little bit worried. And those that have high degree specialization tend to get those much more frequently, really significantly increased risk. And then we looked at our three-year outcomes over over the three years uh, of following our 1,200 athletes. And, and what we basically noticed is that recurrent injury is high. What that means is that you're taking the group that's most at risk, and they're the ones who keep coming back to your office. And I know, Mark, I'm sure you see it all the time, and those of us who deal with youth sport athletes, is it's actually the frequent flyers. And so what we're learning is that I think those are the ones you have to pay attention to, and they need the most resources. To be honest, the seasonal athlete with a, you know an acute injury tend to do pretty well, and their recurrence rates are not as risky. But the, these highly specialized athletes, high workloads year-round who already had prior injury, they tend to be in your office a lot, which is good for business, Mark, but not good for the child. I think that's why we spend a lot of time trying to pour as much resources and education into that. Once we see that, we we know what's coming is this kid is going to be coming back unless we really help educate them and spend a lot of time on their workload progressions. And we have simple rules. And one thing I've been saying for years, and literally there's no research to support it all, but when they come back, when I discharge them to get back in their environment, I say, if you have one day of pain, just take a day off in a high-risk area particularly. If you have one week of pain, take an entire week off. And if it's still going on, I think you need to see me. You know, kind of rough, uh, you know, idea for high-risk areas, like the low back or an elbow in a pitcher and those kind of things. Yeah, I agree. Those frequent flyers that you talked about, I think that it's important to make sure that we're looking at other things with them too, right? We got to look at at their mechanics for their sport and all those types of things of why they are running into these problems. And that's always kind of been my my big push is it's easy for me to diagnose a problem, but how do we get there? And I think that's that's an important concept too of making sure that we're we're addressing that. And you're right. Yes, those frequent flyers, they definitely keep our practices going, no question. Yeah. And actually to the mechanics, like I can't do it for every sport, but I have, you know, background and and we've researched quite a bit on our tennis mechanics. And so every week on Thursday afternoon, I go on court with high level youth tennis players and, and progress them and look at their mechanics. And, and then we talk more about workload progressions and say, this is the right time to start serving. This is the right time to start playing match play in tournaments. And we're pretty engaged as far as we can go. And it, it takes a lot more work, I think, now to do this than it did probably 20 years ago because of the environment. It's like you're releasing them out to the wild. And so you could give them all the information you want, but then they're hearing different things once they get out of your office. So we try to give them as much as we can and have kind of a longer term continuity even out of the office to limit these recurrences. And that's where we really need to make sure that as healthcare professionals also, we're getting that message out to the coaches, those that are involved, the strength and conditioning coaches as well, the personal trainers. I mean, those that these people are seeing on a regular basis outside of our office and they're getting all these different messages, which may or may not be basically aligned with what the current research is showing. And then that's how we can run into trouble sometimes again, is is they are getting lots of hooks in the kitchen, so to speak. And they're trying to take advice from who they probably trust the most. And that's where our patient physician relationship comes in important that they are trusting us that we we are giving them the most recent information absolutely yeah and and it takes a little bit of time to earn that trust and and you know this and this is the primary care doctor in both of us mark is you earn the trust by just 
time. It's really simple. You give your patients time. You listen to them, you answer their questions. You, you follow up with them outside the office. You, you give them time, then you earn their trust. But we have to just make sure we give them that, that time and not rush through these things. Youth athlete progressions and following injury and those, it's, it's, it takes time. And it's hard at the start too, when we talk about taking time, because we are often the the bad people in this picture here and why they don't seek us because the, the general thought process is that we are going to be the ones that are keeping them out from their sports participation. And, and rightly so in some situations, obviously we, we know that there are certain things like you mentioned that we can have some people participate in, or maybe come up with some alternate form of training so they can still stay active and keeping that load going without risk of worsening their, their condition. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. What are some things that we see with quality of life and specialized athletes versus those that aren't? I keep going back to, and again, I think we did this with a concussion. I think we went a little too far to tell people that everything about specialization is bad and you have terrible quality of life and you're going to basically be miserable. And, you know, we, we saw this happen with the concussion exactly like you outlined. And and I, and I like to support that with, with data. So we did one quality of life study that I mentioned on, it was a qualitative study looking at, I forget how many families, but about 30 or 40 families. And we did semi-structured interviews for about an hour with a family and my med student who went into pediatrics. And we published on this in, in a sports psychology journal. And we really looked at the characteristics of what a positive relationship is. And, and the quality of life measures were actually quite high parents of specialized athletes often exercise regularly and their kids obviously met all of American college sports medicine exercise guidelines. So that is a good thing. In the groups that we had, they had the positive environments were supportive, the parents and coaches, they did not focus on winning or outcomes and the kids were resilient. The negative outcomes were pretty simple is obvious that kids who had lower quality lives were families that were not supportive. They focused more on winning and they increased the pressure based on the outcome. And the kids were not resilient. They did not feel like they could bounce back. And and so I have two kids and I know one is resilient and one's not. As simple as that. And so the one who's not resilient, I have to be very careful of pushing too much and pushing too far. We followed this up with a a study that we're still ongoing, but we have data at least from our cross-sectional sample. It's a it's our injury outcome study. It's a quality of life study looking at acute injury versus concussion versus overuse injury. And we partnered with Cynthia LaBella again in, in, out of Chicago and Andrea Straclioni and, and Boston Children's. And between our three sites, we got hundreds of youth athletes and measured their quality of life based on the type of injury. And we found that a couple of things that overall overuse injury had a slightly worse overall quality of life. But in actuality, for these youth athletes, the injury itself did not have a significant difference from the general pediatric population as far as their quality of life following their injury. And what does that mean to us? Yes, the kids are maybe getting hurt, but maybe it's not as bad as we have portrayed in a lot of these position statements. And I think maybe we have to make sure we're still setting the proper message, which is play sports. Yes, I think you can play sports. And why we published this, how do you train an elite specialized manuscript is that There are just some helpful guidelines on workload, total volume, rest periods, but you know, you can still play sports and even play at a high level and even possibly even specialize and still be successful in the right setting. You know, we still believe, you know, the basic concepts would be nice to intensify that a little bit later in your development rather than earlier, but 
I think that uh, quality of life of a youth athlete in general, and just as we've seen with concussion, same kind of concept is don't make it so scary that we're scaring away kids, especially, I'll, this is my soapbox, with a youth female athlete. We've already told them that they might tear their ACL. We told them that they might get female athlete triad. We told them that the concussion symptoms are worse. We told them, we published that your overuse injury risk is worse. So if you told a 12 or 13-year-old girl that these are all the things that could happen with sports and they could choose playing sports or you know, being with their friends and doing something social, we're really scaring these kids away by that messaging. So I think you have to be really careful and maybe focus on, continue to focus on the quality of life of a youth athlete is actually pretty good, even following injury. And yes, there's some work to do, but let's, let's make sure the message is proper about the importance of sport in, in youth. And again, I, you know, using concussion as an analogy, again, we, made such of that extreme messaging. And unfortunately, that extreme messaging is oftentimes ingrained in our sports medicine world now and has become almost gospel for for patients and for coaches and for even sports medicine professionals that it's it's hard to backtrack some. And that's where, you know, I think having someone like you who's a powerful voice in this and making sure that we are revising our message and say, hey, we've learned more and this is where we need to be rethinking this in how we are messaging this so we can make sure that we're we're not scaring kids off or, or uh, scaring parents off from doing particular things. Yeah, I mean, in the end, we are sports doctors. <laughs> that means our real main goal is to try to make sure we get people to be active and, and, and play sports. It's actually not that complicated. So we don't, you know, I, yeah, I mean, you've seen it go through a number of different iterations and I'm trying to help keep it balanced. Like I'm, with evidence, like I'm, as I say it, I'm not trying to go on one end or the other end too far. I'm trying to really make sure that we're calibrating our messaging. And, and so we keep accruing new data and, and it helps us um, to calibrate it. But, you know, it, I'll tell you one thing. And, and I, even when I ha- had an opportunity to speak at your conference, I try to get people to not have me, they, they ask me to speak on sports specialization. They'll give me a title and say, we want you to talk about the dangers of sports specialization. And I say, well, you look, you've already actually made that association and you just want me to talk about how, how to scare people with it. Mm-hmm. And I say, can I talk about how do you train a specialized athlete or other things like that? Like, let's, let's talk about without the stigmata around it. You know, so I'm sure you've gotten all the offers to talk about like the horrors of you know concussion and those types of things. But you know, it's actually possible to, like you've always said, you know, you can play sports and you may get a concussion, but here's the ways to to do it safely and you know don't have to sit in a bubble. And that that's the kind of concept that I I like to do with the the sports specialization thing. Agreed, and especially in an environment in an age right now where there's so much polarization around everything. That's a big issue when we make sure that we have that that moderate message that really is the way to go at presenting the data that's out there and making sure that we're we're, we're messaging appropriately. <laughs> like I said, I, that that doesn't ring more true than it does in the last two years for sure. Yeah, and I'll add one more thing for the researchers out there, and I've told a number of the researchers out there, don't create a research study to create an agenda to say, all right, well, I want to study this population of athletes to show that sports specialization is bad and whatever, gymnasts or something like that or whatever. I think you have to set an agenda to say, what role does sports specialization play in athlete development? What role does training loads play and how much do you need to be successful and how much is 
the point, the threshold where you might get injured and, and don't set an agenda that you're just, your goal is to try to do that so you can get another paper published saying that it's bad. You know, and to try to find the data that, you know, you don't always find that data and it's not, you know, we've been on papers that it doesn't necessarily always show that association. And, and, and there are bad things about it. You may ask like what, you know, kind of is my pearl here is that, you know, it's really about the system that we set up about opportunity. While I agree that there's data that may suggest injury and overuse injury and those types of things, and obviously we have some of that, my feeling is that the the system should be set up so that as many children as possible have an opportunity to engage in sport. That's actually what is more concerning to me is that the, the sports population issue is more about the restriction of opportunity than it is about the injury risk. We've created programs that are very driven and, and, and my own kids in, in a baseball program that is just basically geared to try to develop the highest level athletes. And even at six, we might, I just got the schedule for my, I'm the coach for the six, seven U and it's just really insane. What we're asking the kids to do leaves no opportunity to do anything else during that season. And it's those types of things. And, and if your kid is not really skilled enough, they're already going to have a negative experience and they're not going to choose that opportunity. So I think we have to I think you focus on that, especially with the younger kids, so that they have positive experiences. And it's not so much the, the injury risk on the high-level ones that have made an educated decision to choose to go that route. But I think the focus should be on the other group of increasing opportunities that are more positive for sport. Definitely. Talk to us a little bit about biobanding as a concept for training. Yeah, the last, here I'll you know I'll go over the last couple minutes of uh, concepts here. Uh, I certainly can't take credit for it. Sean Cumming helped us uh, write our manuscript. He's a PhD uh, researcher out of uh, the UK and and has done a lot of work on biological maturation. And so I learned a lot from my. I did a Zoom call with him and read some of his papers and some of his colleagues' papers. And the bottom line is that we right now group you know most all of you sports by age, right? You know, we have eight U, ten U, twelve U, and all these things. And and there's a logical reason to do that. The developmental phases of each kid, as you very well know, are, are quite different. So he has actually studied an, uh, as an intervention a number of different populations of soccer kids, even tennis kids, and actually them grouping them by their percent of predicted adult height, basically their development. So it's a calculated research formula, but you can get your percent of predicted adult height. And if it's you know between 80 and 91%, then you're in the pre-adolescent to the early peak height velocity. If you're 80, 91 to 96%, you're late peak height velocity, 96% and greater, you're in, you know, skeletally mature. And if you group them in either three or four groups, and then you can make adjustments on their training. So you, you know, more, focus more on skill development and those people who are going through peak height velocity rather than rapid directional changes. And you focus on strength. And they did that. And they actually found a really, really striking reduction in overuse injuries and growth-related injuries. And it's a model worth exploring. There's a logistics behind it, but ban them basically in their biological maturation phases. And you can almost predict what you'll get by what stage of development you are, your PPAH. You'll get your Seavers disease in the early 80% and, you know, Osgood-Slaughter about 91% and, you know, low back stress injuries like a 94 to 96%. So they've, they've actually had some pretty good data on that. It's pretty fascinating. It's an interesting concept and one that we really don't talk enough about or, or kind of think about. And it obviously requires a lot more work. You know, we always joke about when you get these kids in middle school and you get, you know, the giant kid and then you get the kid that's still doesn't look like they've even come close to starting puberty yet. 
and we, we group them together and we let them play together. And usually the, the message, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's like clockwork because someone comes in my office and I got, I was injured by the much bigger kid is always the message uh, that I get. I, I don't know if you have the same sort of message you get uh, from your patients in Atlanta, but that's what we get here, at least in St. Louis. Yep. You're, you know, you get these kids, you have improved skill level, but they're just mismatched physically. So, yep, we definitely get that. So why don't we finish up with uh, talking about the concepts of load tolerance versus load naive versus load sensitive athletes. This is something Tim Gabbett and I kind of spent a little time on. We published an editorial on BJSM on this just to try to introduce it. And we, we thought not every kid is different. And I think there's a message to come out of here is, you know, especially if they see in the office or as a therapist or athletic trainer or physician, you have to individualize your recommendations. And we think that there's different there's a low tolerant kid who does fine he's the kid who you know you, you get through your skeletal maturity we call it low naive when you haven't been exposed to high volumes yet of training and they do fine then you get you know then you kind of keep adding on load and they do fine and and they actually make it through and they don't have too much of a problem and and that's what we call we consider low tolerant kid and um, those are the lucky, genetically predisposed or right environment, whatever it is. And then there's the load sensitive kids who who tend to, um, they get injured, they we reduce their volume, maybe their ceiling and floor. You rehab them, they come back up again and they get injured again. And you try to reduce it again, they bring them up, they get injured again. And they seem to not be as tolerant like to higher loads. You really have to be very careful. And those are the ones that, those are the current ones. I think those are the ones, Mark, that we see in the office a lot. We have to be very careful about their tolerance. We have to address biomechanics like you suggested. We have to, uh, they have to have a different set of rules than the other kids that they're going to be training with. And that's the hardest part. Like, so you have to communicate with the coaches and say, okay, maybe the other kids are doing, you know, 14 hours a week, but this kid is very sensitive to that load. And keeps getting back stress injuries or whatever it is or whatever overuse injury gets. So we have to, he or she gets. So, and, and, and truthfully, some of these kids are the ones that may not be tolerant at all to high training competition loads. So sometimes we even have to consider a recreational pathway for that kid. So we try to figure out who those kids are. And, and one way to do it is maybe these concepts of biobanding or try to predict ahead of time and say, look, with every kid now, we calculate their PPAH. We have a graph right there and we say, here's where you are right now. And just as a counseling thing, here's what we would like you to do in your practices. And if you're mid-peak height velocity, we want you to focus more on your strength and skill development and not do a lot of this maybe rapid directional change and unnecessary training or performance type work that puts you more at risk until you get to this phase. And we think maybe that might help as an intervention strategy to limit the progression to load sensitive athletes. Awesome. I know you gave us a little pearl already. I'll give you the opportunity if you want to have a bonus pearl of the podcast, if you have one like final parting take home message for our listeners. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sports is great. I mean, I can't emphasize it enough. And for youth athletes, especially during this pandemic, you got to get your kids out there and find reasons for them to be out there. So let's not find reasons for them not to be out there and, you know, carefully constructed plan that gives opportunities for kids of all levels to play is the most important for any organization or system. And at an individual level, there's going to be some kids are going to go for it and we don't have to 
shame them and tell them that, you know, they're making terrible choices. We counsel them, educate them and, and they give them the right environment. And if that right environment is playing a lot of sports until they're 16, great. But that environment's specializing at 11 or 12, but they have supportive parents, coach, and a healthcare provider who's going to work with them. That's also acceptable. And you just have to give, tell them when to be careful, when not, you know, when they can accelerate their loads. And then I think you'll, you'll be able to be a better partner in the sports community for all of us. And then it's fun. I'd really like to thank Dr. Gianthi for his expertise and tireless efforts to help guide us in the world of sports specialization and youth athletes and for spending some time with us today talking about it. We appreciate all our listeners for spending their time with us. And so be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. If you like what you've listened to, please tell a colleague or friend about our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.